Life seems to throw us curveballs. I, mean, I think we all would agree with that. And, you know, COVID has been a big curveball for most of us. Things don't always go as we plan. And no matter how faithful we are to God or, or how solid our planning is in life, uh, the unexpected seems to happen to us and leaving us sort of far from where we thought we, we might be. Uh, the early church proclaimed salvation came through faith alone, right? Salvation came through faith alone. And when you are faced with great failure, uh, when life throws you a curveball, remember that salvation in life and in circumstance comes simply by believing in Jesus, not just for salvation, but by, but by believing in Jesus in every moment of life. And, and believing is synonymous with faith and with trust, right? You know, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, uh, they have their plans interrupted. And one day, while they're headed to the prayers, uh, a woman possessed by an evil spirit starts to make pronouncements about them, right? And so Paul, in typical Pauline fashion, uh, casts the spirit out of her and unknowingly killing somebody's cash cow because the girl's owners who had you know, been exploiting her for her demonic possession and her supernatural abilities uh, for personal gain got kind of upset when they realized that this great little passive revenue stream had been cut off, right? So they involve city magistrates and they stir up, stir up a mob and, and uh, this mob attacks Paul and Silas and they're beaten and they're thrown into jail. And it's in this jail that we encounter the next proclamation from the early church. Now, we have to notice here that uh, not every important message that the early church proclaimed happened on some grand scale. This is not Peter in front of thousands outside of the temple. This is not them before the Sanhedrin. This is not them before the Jerusalem council council or, or anything like that. This is in the privacy of a prison with one man. And it also holds a relevant lesson for us today. So turn with me to page 757 of your pew Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Page 757, Acts 16, verses 25 through 34. And follow along as I read. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. Now I want to stop there for a moment. We know that any guard who had lost his prisoners in in the Roman system would automatically be given a death penalty. So... And it would also bring much shame on his name and on his family. So taking his own life, uh, you know, it was either less, you know, painful than what awaits him or he just wants to erase the shame or both. But it stands true that he was about to take his own life over this. So it continues, verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be, to be saved? Now, that seems like a strange question to ask, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know why a jailer would do that. You know, he, uh, wouldn't he just kind of scream at them and then close the doors and lock them up again? 
whatever, just to keep them in their cells, right? Well, we're going to see later, but for now it continues, verse 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in, the, in his house. And at that hour of the, of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he, he and all his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now, it seems to me that the jailer here is taking a great risk. Why would he do that? And maybe we're going to find out throughout the story. But while Paul and Silas were in prison, this, this extraordinary thing happens, this, this earthquake, the cells open, Paul and Silas don't escape, even though they had the chance to, right? Instead, everyone remains in their cells. And why is that important? Well, it's important because the actions of the jailer show that he is faced with a very great failure. His honor's on the line in an honor-shame culture, right? And if the, if the prisoners had escaped, the death, then, then death was his only end, and it's his first response. He's going to take his own life. So the question is, have you, have you ever been publicly embarrassed or pub- publicly shamed, messed up so badly that you felt all hope was lost, right? Nothing could ever be the same after that instance, Well, that's how the jailer felt in that moment when he saw the open cell cell doors in that jail. I remember one time I I was teaching English in a school in Lampung, Indonesia, in South Sumatra. And, uh, oh gosh, it was so embarrassing. I had dress shoes on, which I never wear, you know me. And uh, I was required to at the school. And I came down these three steps. And everything in Indonesia, if any building has any money about it, they put these big slick tiles and when it gets dusty there it's like skating right and I came down the stairs and I I slipped and I fell and there's a whole you imagine a whole room of Indonesian teenagers like 13 14 15 years old and I fell on top of a 13 year old girl just while my big fat body just wallowing oh so embarrassing I got up and I thought I would never get past that moment I mean that's a little bit funny but you know Anyway, <laughs> but what follows uh, here reveals the heightened emotions of this, of this jailer. He calls for the lights, he rushes in, and trembling, he falls down at the feet of Paul and Silas. When he finds out that they don't leave, he's just overtaken with this. Now, know this, that jailers don't do this. That's not what they do. We've done prison ministry in this church, right? Jailers are hardened people. They have to be. You're kind of scared of jailers, right? They don't answer to prisoners, right? They don't, they, they, let alone do they bow before them. They don't get advice and counsel from prisoners. They command prisoners, right? Which tells us that there's something greater going on here and that this jailer knows it. And he then stands and he escorts them out of the jail, asking them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The big question. His honor's preserved Job, identity, reputation, all unexpectedly secure, although he had been close to losing them all. And the only thing that he cares about right now is his own salvation. How can he be saved? How can he be delivered from his own personal prison? 
the prison that we all live in, so to speak. And in the face of such temporary turmoil, right, the jailer wants to know how he can experience something eternal, some, some peace eternal, right? So Paul makes this proclamation in answer to the jailer's question in Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's it. Paul's answer, you're saved by faith alone in Jesus. That's it. That simple, right? Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Not you might be saved, Not believe in Jesus and try to be a good person and then you'll be saved. Not believe in Jesus and stop serving the Roman military oppression by being a jailer and then you'll be saved. Not believe in Jesus and reform the prison system and then spend your life serving the poor and then you'll be saved. Paul's answer is so simple, it's almost offensive, right? Believe in Jesus, that's it. Now, modern sensibilities reject this truth, right? Immediately, we begin to construct, you know, sort of counter-arguments, which usually fall in the realm of, if that's all people have to do, then they're just going to do whatever they want. They're just going to live however they want. Even for those of us who have found Christ, found salvation as Christ, it's a struggle for us to remember and to rely solely on faith day in and day out we inevitably feel that there's something we must do to earn our favor with God or to stay in his good graces after salvation. But Paul makes it very clear, not only here, but in all the sermons we've heard about this before, just believe. That's it. Synonymous with trust and faith. For someone who had just narrowly avoided a catastrophic failure, it must have been very refreshing to hear this good news as this jailer hears it, right? Salvation is not contingent on anything good he's done or anything bad he's done, but rather on the one whom he would believe in. Salvation which takes away his shame and actually does give him eternal hope for the future. Now, we're not stupid, We know that not everyone who claims Christ knows Christ. Let me say that twice. We know that not everyone who claims Christ knows Christ. There's plenty of people out there these days and over history that have claimed to know Christ and given the church a very bad name, but I don't believe that they were fully walking with Christ or they even knew Christ. There's a difference in those who use Jesus as a bargaining chip in false repentance, as opposed to those who actually experience a deep heart conviction and salvation in Jesus alone, like this jailer seems to do. The former may make a profession of faith, but then they turn around and laugh as soon as things get better, disregarding the heart direction of life in Christ. And ironically, we call those jailhouse conversions. But it doesn't always happen in a jailhouse, does it? Sometimes it just happens amidst life. Sometimes it happens from the pulpit. Some people in this life preach their whole lives, never actually knowing Christ. Believe it or not, it happens right in the middle of ministry. Since some people live in this self-deception of trying to always earn favor with God when grace dictates that it can only be received freely in Christ. It's all by his work, not mine at all. 
Those who experience true salvation are so cut to the heart, so convicted that they truly repent and they turn away from their sin and they trust and they follow Christ from then on. Maybe not perfectly, we're not saying that, but overall. Listen to the words of what we're going to call person number one. This person says, I am so sorry for what I've done. God help me, a sinner. I believe it was, it was the only, only the protective grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that saved me. I believe only the Lord Jesus Christ can save me from my sins. I have since come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God, and I believe that, as I, that I, as well as everyone else, will be held accountable to him. And if anyone needed to have his sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, it was me. Now, that person seems to get it, right? They seem to grasp it. They know their sin. They are in touch with it. They are contrite. They are humble. They are repentant. They, they know that they cannot earn their salvation themselves. They know salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ. Words that are, if spoken with true conviction, humility, repentance, reveal a soul who has come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. They have found salvation in Christ. Now listen to these words by person number two. Some call him Ishwar. Some call him Allah. Some call him simply God. But we have to acknowledge that it is he who has made us for greater things, to love and be loved. What matters is that we love. I would never try to convert someone to Christianity, but if by my work and witness, Buddhists, Catholics, or agnostics become simply better men, then I am satisfied. My own faith will lead me to my own God. If Hindus believe in their own God very strongly, if they have faith, surely they will be saved. If we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to each other. At the moment of death, we will, we will not be judged by the number of good deeds we've done, but we will be judged according to the love we have put into our work. That person doesn't seem to get it, do they? No, not at all. To them, anyone who goes to heaven that has worked hard in whatever faith tradition they find themselves, and it sounds great, they even say, we will not be judged by the number of good deeds that we have done, but we will be judged according to the love that we have put into our work. Oh, that fits our common narrative right now very strongly. But they disregard Jesus' words that he is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. They disregard what the Christian faith teaches, that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ, and that's it. Theirs is a works-based righteousness. If you look closely at that statement, you must work really hard at being really loving to people, which we all fail at if we're honest, right? We all fail at. The first person is Jeffrey Dahmer. Interestingly enough, serial killer, sex offender, necrophiliac, cannibal who murdered and dismembered at least 17 men and boys from 1978 to 1991 when I was in, growing up in high school and early college years, known as the Milwaukee Monster, sentenced to 15 life terms in prison and found to be legally sane at his trial. But he seems to have truly repented 
and believed in Christ in prison. Possibly the true jailhouse conversion. The second person is Mother Teresa. Interestingly enough, Nobel Prize winner in 1979, canonized by the Roman Catholic Church in 2016. The anniversary of her death is, first, is uh, her feast day on September 5th. She founded the Missionaries of Charity, a Roman Catholic organization active in 133 countries, managing homes for people dying with AIDS and leprosy and tuberculosis. It also runs soup kitchens, dispensaries, mobile clinics, children's and family counseling programs, uh, as well as orphanages and schools. Members of it take a vow of chastity, poverty, and obedience, and even vow to give wholehearted free service to the poorest of the poor. A woman who didn't seem to grasp at all the gospel of Christ. Hers is a works-based righteousness if she had those beliefs to the very end of her life. I don't know. Not understanding. She didn't understand what Paul wrote when he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Or Jesus' words, his answer to those who asked him in John chapter 6, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And his answer was, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, referring to himself. That's it. Now, our brains can't handle this, right? We want people to earn their way. Surely, Mother Teresa earned her way to heaven. Culture has formed us to think that those who simply do good must have more favor with God, and those who have done bad don't. We judge not on the submission of the will to God or the conviction of the soul before God. We judge on external track records or even on our looks. How can it be that a disgusting, sex-offending murderer makes it to heaven's door while someone who has devoted their life to serving the poor cannot? Well, the answer lies in the pride of our own hearts. Do we recognize our total depravity before God, our total and absolute need before God, and the glorious truth of Christ as the only God of the universe who can save us? all by his work. We need not look any farther than Christ's reaction to the very religious Pharisees when he called them a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but they're dead and empty on the inside. That's what that means. And yet, he welcomed a criminal into his kingdom, hanging next to him on the cross, a guy he had never met before. A man having never done any good in his life, apparently, that man could have been Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not suggesting that we are the judge of hearts, but we can make judgments on the professions of a person's mouth. Mother Teresa said and did a lot of wonderful things in this world, but she did not seem to grasp the gospel by her own words. And these are important things to think about. Back to our story, now that I've upset you. 
Why, why did the jailer ask Paul and Silas how to be saved? We don't know for certain. But it's probably safe to say that he asked because he had just watched them demonstrate their own faith in two very visible and powerful ways. And the first being their worship. Before the earthquake and after the imprisonment, about a, a midnight, Paul and Silas are sitting there praying and singing hymns to God. And every, all the other prisoners are listening, and most likely, so was that jailer. Remember, the context of this worship is that they are unexpectedly attacked by this mob. They are beaten multiple times. They're thrown into prison. They're, their feet are chained in stocks, usually stretched out so that it's very uncomfortable and painful. And, and they respond by saying, let's pray to God. Let's sing, sing, sing songs to God. Isn't that crazy? You can't help but to wonder if they had black eyes and broken lips and maybe they were covered in dried blood as they sang. Yet they lived out their faith in Christ by giving him glory even when they were in the very valley of the shadow of death. You remember, and you might be bored of me telling the story, my wife will say to me after this sermon, don't use that story again, you've used it too much, but it's just such a great story from the Insanity of God, that book by Nick, Nick, Nick Ripkin. He tells the story of Dimitri in Russia, locked up with 1,500 hardened criminals for years, tortured and, and beaten repeatedly just for the crime of being a Christian. That's it. And to get out, all he had to do was sign an, a false confession and, and deny Christ. That's all he had to do. So easy, right? Just sign it. I don't really mean it, but I'll sign it anyway. That's all he had to do. From the first day in prison to his last, he stood every single morning and he sung the same worship song to Jesus while 1,500 prisoners, hardened prisoners, screamed at him and yelled at him and ridiculed him for doing so. And every time, every time he found a little scrap of paper in the prison, he would scribble Bible verses and hymns or whatever and stories he could remember on it, and then he would stick it to the wall in his cell, and then the guards would read it, and they would come in, and they would take it down, and they would beat him for it. Every single day it seemed like it happened. And this went on for years until, in an effort to break Dimitri, the guards lied to him. They told him that his wife, his wife had been murdered and that his kids had been taken by the state. And so devastated by this, after years of torture, this was his breaking point. And he asked for the document to sign. And they prepared it for the next morning. And Dimitri spent that night in anguish that he would even consider denying Christ for this. But hours away in their home that night, Dimitri's wife and kids and other friends gathered because they had sensed his despair and they started to pray for him. And they prayed for his strength. And miraculously, the Holy Spirit allowed Dimitri to audibly hear their prayers while he was in a cell hundreds of miles away. And the next morning as the jailer showed up, Dimitri said, I'm not gonna sign that thing. You guys lied to me. My wife and kids are totally fine. They're praying for me. God allowed me to hear their prayers last night, and they are incensed by this point with him. And so the next day, Dimitri finds a full sheet of paper and pencil out in the yard, and he writes down everything he can think about, every verse, every hymn, every story he can think about, and he puts it on a cell wall. And he knew that this would be foolish to do, that he's going to get beaten. And uh, 
they were so mad about this that they decided to execute him. And as they led him out of the prison, into the, the prison yard to execute him the next morning, uh, all 1,500 prisoners stood up in their cells and they started to sing that worship song that Dimitri had sung for years every single morning in solidarity with him. And at that, the jailers let go of his arms and they said, who are you? And he answered, I'm a child of God and Jesus is his name. And they returned him to his cell and not long after that, they released him. We are saved by faith alone. A faith, though, that is lived out for the glory of Christ, for the sake of Christ in all situations. When the opportunity for escape came, instead of saying, I'm out of here, Paul and Silas recognized the God-given authority of their jailer and the magistrates who had put them in there, and they stayed, although they had the opportunity to escape persecution. James wrote that faith without works is dead. James 2:17. True faith can't be anything but lived out, right? Paul and Silas and our friend Dimitri from Russia lived out their faith in worship and by honoring authority even though their situation was dire and they had a way out. They didn't take it, right? They didn't take the out. And when the jailer saw that, he was probably asking himself, what do you have that makes you so? I can't survive this world. My own prison, I can't survive without it. Like Dimitri's jailers, who are you? What are you? <laughs> right? Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Paul and Silas and Dimitri show that they are willing to die, physically even, but die to self. That there are greater things, things of greater importance in our lives being spent for Christ. They were unconcerned with their future for their own personal safety in following Jesus. They saw their lives as expendable for his sake. That's a big lesson. Francis Schaeffer said that there are splinters in the cross of Christ for, for the Christian. The perspective of the Christian life is the exact opposite of the world's, isn't it? The world doesn't say no to itself. It doesn't put itself in harm's way. That's not wise, right? But Christians deny self for the sake of something greater in Christ because we have a hope of the future. Schaefer said in his books, uh, True Spirituality, we've produced a mentality of abundance wherein everything's to be judged on the basis of whether it leads to abundance. Everything else must give in to this. Absolutes of any kind, ethical principles, everything must give in to affluence and selfish personal peace. He wrote that a long time ago, but it seems very real today. Would you have even been put in jail for Jesus? Would you have even put yourself in that place to have the risk of being in jail for Jesus? And if so, would you have taken out, would you, would you, you know, run out, run out when the doors opened? 
Or would you say no to your own personal gain and safety and stay for something greater? The result of Paul and Silas's answer is incredibly touching, if you read this right. The jailer washes their wounds. He's baptized along with his whole household. He takes them into his home. He feeds them. He cares for them. Maybe the difficulties that we face, God actually has in hand, right? Maybe our lives are not about our own personal plans, our own gain, our 401k, even our safety, but about our allowing God to spend our lives for, as, as he will for his glory in whatever difficult time or place that we find ourselves. 